Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Supreme Court ruled today that former President Trump must turn over his tax returns to House Democrats. What this means for the case that's been going on since 2019. Arizona counties are finishing counts and certifying midterm elections, but two counties are intentionally delaying certifications. Meanwhile, Maricopa County election officials are being threatened. The United States is taking major action to deter a possible war with China. NTD has the details of today's Space Force Command Ceremony. Rescuers in Indonesia continue to recover bodies from the site of the deadly earthquake. Over 260 people are killed and over 150 are still missing. And we look at two recent moves by international bodies with a first-hand account from an award-winning journalist and his take on how it could affect you. Former President Trump's tax records could be released to a House Democrat committee. The Supreme Court today denied his final appeal to block their access. A lower court had ruled in August that the Ways and Means Committee could obtain the tax returns. A D.C. appeals court declined to intervene, causing Trump to turn to the highest court. The committee says the information is necessary to check how the IRS audits presidents. Tax returns are confidential under federal law, but there are exceptions that allow the chairman of the committee to request them. House Democrats and the Biden administration say the request is based on a valid legislative purpose. The Supreme Court's decision gives the committee an opportunity to access the records before Republicans take over the House in January. The committee first sought the returns in 2019. And as counties across the state of Arizona work to certify ballot counts, two counties have decided to delay their certifications. Meanwhile, election officials in the state are still receiving threats. NTD's Arlene Richards has the update. Arizona's Mojave County announced on Monday that it delayed certifying midterm election results. Republican board members called the decision a political statement to express dissatisfaction with Maricopa County's voting problems. Mojave is the second county in less than a week to delay certification. On Friday, the Republican-led Cochise County Board announced its delay. The board demanded proof that their vote-counting machines were legally certified. Both counties are expected to certify results by the November 28 deadline. The delays came as Maricopa finished counting the last remaining ballots, and the Arizona Attorney General opened a probe into Election Day problems numerous voters reported. But Maricopa said in a Twitter post, 1.56 million voters cast a ballot and called it just behind the record-high turnout in 2018 of 65.5 percent. In the controversial governor's race, Democrat Secretary of State Katie Hobbs finished two points over Republican Kerry Lake. But statewide, with about 16,000 votes still uncounted, Lake was within 0.6 percentage points. Under Arizona law, an automatic recount triggers when the margin is less than or equal to 0.5 percent. But after the AG announced its investigation, Lake vowed she would win the race. Meanwhile, Maricopa County Supervisor Bill Gates spent the night in an undisclosed location for his own safety. Gates and other officials received threats during the midterms, and they haven't stopped. The county's sheriff said the threats are criminal and come mostly from out of state. We do not need interference from people outside of the state to tell us how to run an election or what elected officials are um, deserving to be in their positions. 
He said people in positions to speak publicly have provoked others to act. So far, no arrests have been made. The state is set to certify results from all 15 counties on December 5th, a move needed before recounts can proceed. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. As tensions with China and North Korea continue to rise, the United States has taken a major step to deter a potential war. Today, the U.S. activated a Space Force unit in the Indo-Pacific region. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. By order of the Secretary of Defense, United States Space Forces Indo-Pacific is hereby activated, effective 22 November 2022. On Tuesday, at Camp H.M. Smith in Hawaii, the Indo-Pacific Command, or Indo-PACOM, became the first combatant command to host a Space Force unit. The commander of Indo-PACOM, Admiral John Aquilino, shared his thoughts at the ceremony. It's no accident that it happened here in the Indo-Pacific first. The most consequential theater with four of the five identified national security threats sitting in this theater, whether it be the People's Republic of China, the Russians, the North Koreans, or violent extremists. Although the Department of Homeland Security lists domestic violent extremism as a top threat to national security, multiple whistleblowers have said that the FBI is artificially inflating statistics about domestic violent extremism for political purposes. Also at the command ceremony was the Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Saltzman. He explained that the Space Force unit will help deter a potential war with China. Brigadier General Anthony Mastelier is now the commander of the newly activated Space Force unit at Joint Base Pearl Harbor. Space underpins every aspect of warfighting here, where we must overcome the tyranny of distance on a daily basis, where space, act, where space enables access to otherwise denied areas, to increase range and lethality of our weapon systems, and where space is key to our ability to project power at the time and place of our choosing. But any military satellites and equipment the Space Force launches into space may not be free from attacks. In January 2007, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, fired an anti-satellite missile against one of its own inactive weather satellites. And the Pentagon expects the CCP to continue pursuing anti-satellite weapons. Jason Perry. NTD News. Over in Indonesia, rescue workers are continuing to search for bodies and survivors. A 5.6 magnitude earthquake yesterday left at least 268 people dead and over 1,000 injured on the island of Java. In the Indonesian city hardest hit by the earthquake, bodies continue to be recovered from the debris on Tuesday. Rescuers used jackhammers, circular saws, and sometimes their bare hands. The Indonesian president visited the affected area on Tuesday. On behalf of myself and the government of Indonesia, I would like to express my deepest condolences on the earthquake that hit Jenjer City in West Java province. Widodo promised that missing bodies will be recovered, and he ordered the rescue team to prioritize recovering bodies that are still buried. The earthquake struck Indonesia's most densely populated West Java province on Monday. The epicenter was at a depth of just six miles, around 135 miles south of the capital, Jakarta. Authorities say 151 people are still missing. 
This is so terrible. What I went through with this earthquake, I had to lose relatives, and my house was also destroyed. Blocked roads and damaged bridges prevented rescuers from bringing excavators and other heavy equipment to the rural area. Experts said the shallowness of the quake and inadequate infrastructure contributed to the severe damage. The death toll is expected to rise. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Our thoughts go out to the families and communities affected by this destruction, and we'll keep you updated as we find out more. And just about 500 miles east of that horrific scene, last week the group of 20 issued a major declaration, while this past Sunday in Egypt, nearly 200 countries signed on to a significant deal at the UN's Climate Change Conference, or COP27. So how might these major moves affect you, and what do you need to know about them? Earlier today, I spoke with award-winning international journalist Alex Newman for his take. Alex Newman, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, wealthier UN nations have decided to pay developing nations as reparations for climate change. But you say that it's a guise for seizing people's wealth for redistribution. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I just got back from Egypt, the UN climate conference, and uh, they have basically committed to create this fund that's going to send massive amounts of money. The amounts are still yet to be determined, but uh, the European Union uh, and, and many other so-called Western governments have committed to put money into here. Uh, the, the premise is that uh, because Western nations industrialize, they put CO2 into the atmosphere, and somehow this is supposed to be resulting in hurricanes, fires, droughts, et cetera, uh, all across the uh, undeveloped world or, or less developed world, as they call it. Uh, so that's the premise. Uh, I spoke with many, many scientists uh, who have rejected this hypothesis. They say it's pseudoscience. Uh, whether Republicans in Congress who just took over the House of Representatives will be willing to pay, I think, remains to be seen. Nobody at the summit really wanted to talk about that fact. But um, hugely significant what's happening here. Uh, we're talking about permanent wealth redistribution from the Western world to the governments of third world nations. Uh, and all of this will be happening as the energy systems, the productivity, the productive capacity of Western nations is being deliberately undermined, also under the guise of fighting climate change. And so I asked uh, almost everybody I could find there, delegates, NGOs, activists, you know, what about communist China? Uh, communist China emits more than twice the amount of CO2 that the United States does in fact they emit more than the entire western world combined uh, they're putting more coal-fired power plants online in the next few years than the united states has online in total uh, why is nobody talking about this? The communist Chinese are not going to be paying anything into this fund. Nobody wanted to talk about that. They just had nice things to say about China. Well, they're lifting people out of poverty. They're building windmills. So a very, very bizarre story there, Stefania. Indeed. Now, you said that you've observed a trend at COP27, a perspective that capitalism is a key culprit in climate change. There's all of what you just mentioned about China's contribution or lack thereof to this new plan. What else did you observe and where do you think this mindset is taking us? Yeah, one of the messages that comes through very clearly at these summits is that capitalism and the United States are the problem, right? It's not so much CO2 emissions. Uh, that's just the rhetoric. But when you really get down to it, um, and they say this openly, you, you have people marching all around this summit shouting uh, system change, not climate change. And so I talked to some of these people, you know, what do you mean by system change? And they said, well, well, capitalism is the real culprit. Uh, the United States is always public enemy number one. Uh, one of the biggest uh, sideshows that they have there, it's uh, put on 
on by uh, the Climate Action Network, which uh, we found out from some reports and documents from Congress. This was actually an organization that was being funded by Gazprom, the state-backed uh, Russian energy giant. Uh, they do these big skits in front of all the delegates right outside the plenary session where they give uh, what they call the Fossil of the Day Award, and then they give at the end the Fossil of the Year Award. Uh, the United States always wins that. And so the, the level of demonization of Americans is unbelievable even though uh, CO2 emissions in the United States are falling very, very rapidly, uh, even though the United States pays the bulk of the funding for all these UN agencies, these summits and all the rest of it, uh, and somehow communist China is totally exempt. So uh, what you really see is that this is not so much about stopping climate change. This is about money and massive amounts of it. Uh, it's about control. And uh, it's about, in the words of John Holdren, Obama's science czar, uh, who uh, was one of the leading architects of this whole thing, uh, about deindustrializing the Western world while communist China rises to superpower status, builds up its economy very rapidly, and of course, builds the military might that accompanies that. A stark picture there that you're painting. Now, turning to health, the G20 is now promoting a global vaccine passport and other forms of control through health. Critics are alarmed, of course, citing in the invasion of privacy and potential for government coercion. But others say that it will save lives. That's the common argument. What's your take on that? Yeah, we, we've seen the writing on the wall for this for quite some time. In fact, uh, I, I've written multiple articles about this, including a, a major one that I did in the Epoch Times about these efforts to change the uh, international health regulations and also to move through this uh, international pandemic treaty. Uh, they've been working on this idea of an international health certificate, an international vaccine passport for many years. In fact, long before COVID came along, the European Union was talking about it, the World Health Organization was talking about it, even the U.S. government was talking about it. So this was a solution looking for a problem. Uh, and then COVID came along and they said, okay, now's the opportunity to spring this on the nation of the world uh, and the nations of the world. It became very, very obvious during COVID and now in Indonesia at the G20 meeting, they just completely came out of the closet and said, we want a World Health Organization controlled digital health certificate that people will be able to, it must use to cross borders to prove that they've received the vaccinations that the World Health Organization recommends. Uh, I think when you look at this objectively, uh, what we're talking about here really is an international health dictatorship beyond the accountability, certainly of voters, beyond even the accountability of any nation state. Right? Uh, the U.S. government withdrawed from the, withdrew from the World Health Organization during Donald Trump's administration, uh, and yet these processes continued to march forward. Uh, obviously, uh, the dictatorship in communist China is very pleased with this. In fact, there's some of the driving forces behind it. Uh, the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, was put there with uh, the backing of uh, Beijing the CCP. So uh, this really is a nightmare for privacy, for individual liberty, uh, and it's going to be a nightmare for everybody on the planet except the totalitarians who, who like this idea. Now, as you mentioned, many of these major international deals are far removed from the average citizen voter who has little recourse to change things at their level. So what do you suggest for people who may be seeking more agency in these potentially life-changing decisions? Well, I think when the Republicans come into Congress, they're going to at least control the House of Representatives. I understand the Senate is uh, yet to be dis determined. We'll see what happens at this runoff in Georgia. But um, I, I think Republicans in Congress really have an opportunity. And I've, I've spoken with members of Congress on the Republican side, and they did say they were going to be using uh, funding as leverage for uh, a lot of these programs, not just uh, dealing with the WHO and health issues, but also the war on farmers, things like that. But we've heard this many times before. So I think um, Republicans really do need to get serious about 
about this. Uh, there's a lot of leverage, right? The U.S. government historically has been the largest funder, not just of the WHO, but of all the different U.N. agencies and the U.N. itself. So uh, without American funding, a lot of this would stop. Uh, I think Republicans in Congress need to get very serious about this because the rights of their constituents are quite literally on the line here. And again, this is beyond the reach of even the U.S. government, beyond the accountability of American voters. I think it needs to be made very clear that this is not acceptable to Americans. All right, Alex Newman, award-winning international journalist, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Dr. Anthony Fauci today gave his final White House briefing, but his farewell message was followed by a chaotic scene. NTD's Iris Tao brings us more. Before retiring next month, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a household name during the pandemic, briefs White House reporters one last time. Final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, <laughs> is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, get your updated COVID-19 shot. Fauci was attending a briefing about the Biden administration's latest push for people to get the updated COVID vaccine before the holidays. But attention was drawn to what Fauci himself could be facing next. If there are oversight hearings, I absolutely will cooperate fully and testify before the Congress have asked. You may not know, but I've testified before the Congress a few hundred times, uh, okay? <laughs> Republicans have repeatedly vowed to investigate Fauci with his new majority. That's in addition to a tweet today by Republican Congressman Andy Biggs, who says Republicans will be bringing in Fauci ASAP and that resigning will not prevent him from being held accountable. But Fauci insisting today that he has nothing to hide and saying this about how he wants to be remembered. So if they want to remember me, whether they judge rightly or wrongly what I've done, I gave it all I got. Meanwhile, some chaos today in the White House briefing room. A reporter shouted a question about what Fauci's done to investigate the origin of COVID. And this is what happened. She's asking about the origin of COVID. I hear the question. And Dr. Fauci is the best person I, to answer. I hear your question, but we're not doing this the way you want it. This is the disrespect of. It is. I'm done. Simon, I'm done. I'm Simon. And other probes are coming up even before Fauci retires. On Wednesday, Fauci is scheduled to be questioned under oath as a part of a lawsuit alleging administration colluded with social media companies to suppress free speech. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Are mask mandates going to make a comeback soon? A new report from the Department of Health and Human Services says masking should be encouraged or even mandated once again. The health department commissioned the report and a research agency called COFORMA produced it. The report called for various government policies on COVID-19. Among them are funding for long COVID support groups, new health benefits for COVID victims, and a mask mandate in public. The report said, quote, the lifting of mask mandates and indifferent attitude toward masking and social distancing typical in many public and private places further isolates people with long COVID. The report said policymakers should encourage or mandate mask wearing. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, the World Cup has been the setting for some of the biggest upsets in sports history. And today saw another one of those historic games. It's the holiday season and many are traveling to spend time with family and friends. Thanksgiving travel numbers are back up to pre-pandemic levels. Stay tuned for more after this short break.
now over to Sports News. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Argentina lost 2-1 to Saudi Arabia today in what's already being called one of the greatest upsets in World Cup history. Lionel Messi started things off well enough by converting a penalty in the 10th minute to give Argentina a 1-0 lead. It was the 35-year-old's 92nd career goal scored in international play, but unfortunately it would be all his side would muster, and after a pair of Saudi Arabia goals early in the second half, the upset was on. Third-ranked Argentina entered the match with a 36-game unbeaten streak in international play, just one short of the record. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia was the second-lowest-ranked team in the field and had just three total wins in their entire World Cup history. The upset has been compared to Cameroon beating Diego Maradona in Argentina back in 1990, Senegal topping defending champion France in 2002, and even the U.S. beating heavily favored England all the way back in 1950. Elsewhere in soccer, Cristiano Ronaldo will leave Manchester United effective immediately, just a few days after criticizing the club's manager and owners in a well-publicized interview. The 37-year-old is free to join another club immediately and will not have to wait for the January transfer window. Ronaldo was currently in Qatar as Portugal is set to face Ghana on Thursday. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, four NBA games are on the docket, including Ben Simmons' long-awaited return to Philadelphia. And in the NHL, a doubleheader this evening with the Canadians hosting the Sabres while the Rangers play at the Kings. And finally, for you college basketball fans, the Maui Invitational tonight features four ranked teams as 9th ranked Arkansas takes on 10th ranked Creighton, followed by 14th ranked Arizona facing 17th ranked San Diego State. And that's all for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. Well, Thanksgiving is almost here, and many travelers have already hit the road. They say inflation won't prevent them from seeing their families. As people start their Thanksgiving break early, travel experts predict this year's crowds to rival those of 2019. Remote work is allowing some travelers to leave earlier or return home later, spreading out the holiday rush over more days than usual. Well, we have some family coming in from Ireland, so we're excited to see them uh, while joining uh, Grandma and Grandpa in San Francisco and Auntie Katie. For some, costs are a secondary concern as people make the trips to visit loved ones, but others have to work around the pricey tickets. I think the cost of travel is definitely up, so that's why we came in a little bit early and we're going to be going home a little bit earlier. Um, you know, but because the cost of everything's up also, we had the credit card points to get the flights. Um, yeah, the economy is a little concerning, but that's life, you know, and we still got to spend time with the family and people because that's more important than just things. Well, currently my car is messed up, but um, I, I was going to fly over here, but it was too expensive. They wanted it like $300 for one way, and I was like, well, that's too much. And I found out the Amtrak, only $42 one way. The Transportation Security Administration screened nearly 2.33 million travelers on Sunday, surpassing the 2.32 million on the Sunday before Thanksgiving in 2019. AAA predicts that nearly 55 million people in the U.S. will travel at least 50 miles from home this week, an increase over last year and only 2% less than in 2019. Airlines say they're ready for crowds. 
They're aiming to avoid a repeat of widespread delays and cancellations that hit some holiday weekends during late spring and early summer this year. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.